This is WCNY's The Capital Press Room, and we're diving into the wonky world of library budgeting and specifically spending some time talking about legislation unanimously approved this spring that would change the process for getting certain budget questions before voters in certain communities across New York. For more on this issue, we're joined in the Capitol Press Room by Rebecca Smith-Aldrich, Executive Director of the Mid-Hudson Library System. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thank you, David. And also joining us is Max Prime, Director of Government Relations and Advocacy for the New York Library Association. Welcome back to the show, Max. Thanks so much for having us. So what are the types of libraries that would be impacted by the legislation that I referenced uh, at the top of the show in my introduction? That is a really interesting question because New York is a complicated state. Uh, there's actually four different types of libraries, and technically all of them uh, fall under this opportunity, but it's primarily used by what are called municipal public libraries and association libraries. Uh, this is the opportunity for them to have their budgets voted on by the public, so a pretty important item for the legislature to take on. And right now, how are these votes happening? How do these budgets for association libraries, for example, get before voters? So currently they go through a petition process and that would not change. However, right now, the number of signatures, these small, usually rural or suburban libraries uh, have to get is pretty onerous. So I have over 30 libraries in my region. I, I cover a five county area here in the mid Hudson Valley. Over 30 of my libraries use this mechanism and they're in small towns like the town of Beekman. They have to get over 500 signatures just to get on the ballot on election day. And then they have to win that vote. So if you take a look at any other type of library and let's say you know you could take a school or a, a other type of referendum that's out there no one else is held to this kind of standard and it's really disenfranchising these smaller rural and, and suburban libraries at this point so we're looking to reduce the number of signatures so it, they're clear out the barriers to get on the ballot we still have to have that public vote the taxpayers get to have their say but these smaller libraries their volunteer base are just exhausted by these signature campaigns they have to go through currently and the legislation that I mentioned, what would that do for the threshold in order to get on the ballot? Yeah, it would set it at a, a common uh, number for all types of libraries. It would be 25 votes, which matches the other types of libraries threshold they have to hit right now. School district public libraries and libraries that use another niche mechanism in education law, uh, which is called the 259 ballot, they're also required to get 25 signatures. So we're looking for parity in the law for these other types of libraries. It, it seems nonsensical. They're held to such a high standard when everyone else is getting 25 signatures. Well, what's the rationale to even have a petitioning process to begin with in order to put something like this on the ballot. I understand when it comes to political candidates, having a petitioning process serves to offer some sort of threshold for the legitimacy of candidates and parties. But don't communities have a vested interest in having these library budgets on their ballots so they can vote on them? Yeah, absolutely. I would say so. But I, from my perspective, and I've, I've done work in this area for over 25 years, I think part of it's transparency, right? We want to make sure voters know this is a thing and it's coming and other voters are part of the process. And so I think libraries don't mind the fact that signatures are required. It's just the number was really unreasonable. So having that addressed it would be a really, it's honestly a game changer for these smaller libraries to be able to have routine votes um, on their budget. So they're asking for reasonable increases rather than 
waiting eight to 10 years, which is often the case because it's just such a big lift to get all these signatures. So, I mean, absolutely, I'm on board for no signatures and let's just be on the ballot. But I certainly understand legislators wanting to heighten the transparency of the activity by the libraries. Wait, so there are communities around New York State where they only vote on their budget libraries every eight or 10 years? Oh, yeah. Yep. These libraries, it's so exhausting for them to do these signature campaigns that we only have of my 35 libraries that do this. There's only two of them that go on a regular basis, and that's every three years. The rest of them are waiting five, seven, nine, ten. I have one that's going this year that uh, waited eight years. I've got one that's never done it before because they've just been so concerned about being able to pull off the petition campaign. Rebecca, is it the Brewster Public Library that that waited about 10 years until in 2021, the uh, threshold was temporarily lowered to 25 and they were able to get a vote on? There's several libraries that um, took advantage of that opportunity that COVID presented. Um, and it's interesting you bring up uh, Brewster because it's such a good a, a good story to tell. This is a library that had been relying on a municipality for appropriations for many years. And then their village decided to just zero out the library budget. Um, and they used this mechanism to put the power in the hands of the voters. And so I think it's undeniable this mechanism really is what democracy is all about. Let's have taxpayers have their say. Um, but when we create barriers to the opportunity for voters to have their say, it results in chronically underfunded libraries. Well, it sounds like you just sort of touched on this, but in the situation where a library is not having its budget going before voters on an annual basis, what does that mean for their funding in those other years? Is it the case where municipalities are putting aside money in their budgets or are budgets from these libraries looking for funding on an eight or 10 year time span? Well, really, it usually means these libraries are underfunded. They're dealing with flat funding for anywhere to half or a full decade, and they're just trying to make do, which is next to impossible when inflation looks like it has the past few years. So you're seeing libraries do pretty amazing things on shoestring budgets. They're relying on volunteers. They're basically not meeting the needs of their community or delaying preventative maintenance on their facilities, which ends up costing more in the long run. So it's a really unhealthy model right now. So when we take a look at, you know, you know, I think certainly library boards who are all volunteers, they're neighbors of the taxpayers voting on this. They're always so conscientious, but it gets to an extreme situation when you aren't able to get in front of the voters on you know, a biannual basis or every few years to really keep up with just the general increases in costs of doing business from paying the electricity bill or the fact that computers get more expensive or the whole ebook world and purchasing <laughs> ebooks and licensing for that kind of stuff. I mean, things change. As we all know, at our, our own home and household pocketbooks, and these libraries are no different. Well, Rebecca, you talked about the petitioning process through the lens of transparency when it comes to elections. So what does that mean? Is that just the idea that by going through the petitioning process, people become aware that there is going to be an election? Or is there more to it than that when you're talking about transparency and petitioning? I think it's it's both that. I think it, it's the transparency of voters becoming aware that this is coming, but also it, it, I think it holds library boards accountable to get out there and explain themselves. And, you know, we're going to go for a vote and this is why, and this is what will happen if you vote yes. And these are some of the consequences if you vote no. So I like the idea that library boards are connecting and communicating well with their neighbors about the situation. So we have informed votes on these issues and things aren't happening in the dead of night with no one noticing. But even under the current dynamic, only requiring 10% of signatures or 
based on the total number of votes cast, say, in a municipality for governor in the last election, that still means that a large fraction uh, of the population is not kept abreast of what's going on. So it doesn't seem like the petitioning process is the most effective way in, in getting the word out about elections that are going to be happening, right? Absolutely not. It's a diversified campaign, right, to get the word out about what's going on. In fact, during COVID, when there was the temporary suspension of this law and libraries only needed 25 signatures, most libraries went out and still got hundreds of signatures because they like the opportunity to speak with voters and explain what's going on. So I think libraries understand that in today's media environment, it's really hard to get the word out. I don't know about you folks, but when I was growing up, everyone in my neighborhood read the Poughkeepsie Journal. And now that is not the case. And so getting in front of folks and making sure they know what's going on in a community, it takes a lot of planning and strategery, shall we say, <laughs> um, to use multiple channels to make sure folks know what's going on. So I think this is one of many things libraries do to help educate voters as to the um, opportunities and challenges they're facing. Even when the uh, threshold was lowered to uh, 25 temporarily and libraries went out there and got hundreds of, of signatures, that's something that you have to take into consideration with the current threshold that exists, that 10%, because you're not just going to go out and get exactly the number of signatures that you need to get. You're going to go out and get a lot of extra in case some of those signatures you know, are done in error or something happens there. So there's an, that added burden on the, the volunteer base, on the the board members to go out there and get even further beyond in excess of that 10%. Well, you've both brought up the pandemic and how libraries had their elections sort of altered during that process. And one of the things that we saw during the pandemic was a greater utilization of absentee voting. And I'm curious how you guys see the role of mail-in voting for library budget votes. Do you think that's a tool to potentially dramatically increase participation, having some sort of widespread, no-excuse mail voting for library budgets? In general, uh, anything that can be done to, to expand uh, ballot access would, would certainly be, be helpful. I think anytime you break down barriers to access for participation in democracy, that's a good thing, as long as there's great controls in place to make sure there's no fraud. So I think that you know libraries are always conscientious about these things and advertise the opportunities. But I would say that it's rarely a make or break issue for libraries. We really see uh, nice levels of engagement of folks in person. But again, there's always people with interesting um, situations where this might facilitate a vote when otherwise they couldn't. When you say nice levels of participation, what is voter turnout actually like for library budgets? I mean, I'm a regular every year prime voter in elections for political office, but I've been known to miss the occasional uh, library and school budget vote. So what sort of participation are we talking about under the current landscape? So for this particular piece of legislation, um, it forces or it requires libraries to have their votes on election day. So mm -hmm. you're looking at the voter turnout you would for the election of the governor and the president. So um, that's uh, for the majority of libraries in the state, that's the voter turnout is on. It's the same um, for the political candidates and major referendum. So I think, you know, just like fire districts, when you start looking at the more special district votes, of course, voter turnout is going to be lower. Um, you've got smaller units as well as has less visibility for those votes, but the 414 libraries, they are, they are put through the test just like a political candidate. Well, we've been speaking with Rebecca Smith-Aldrich. She is the executive director of the Mid-Hudson Library System. Rebecca, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. 
And we've also been speaking with Max Prime, Director of Government Relations and Advocacy for the New York Library Association. Thank you, Max. Absolutely. Thank you for having us, David. And for more Capital Press Room content, visit capitalpressroom.org or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And if you listen to us from an Apple device, make sure to leave us a rating and a review so it helps other people find the show. Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information.